We're up to mitzvah number 77, and this is another mitzvah that deals with the court proceedings and the court deliberations, and we're specifically talking about how a court processes a capital crime case. And the Mishnah in the book of Sanhedrin, which deals with a lot of the jurisprudence and judicial proceedings and protocol and, and how exactly we process court cases, the Mishnah tells us that there are different categories of court cases. There's, of course, capital crime cases, and then there are civil cases or monetary cases, and the laws of how we process these different cases are different. So the Mishnah tells us that both monetary and capital crime cases, we have to investigate and interrogate the witnesses, we have to cross-examine the witnesses, we have to evaluate if these witnesses are legit or maybe they are fraudulent. However, there are 10 differences between monetary cases, between civil cases, and between capital crime cases. Number one, a monetary court, you need only three justices, whereas a capital crime case, you need a minor Sanhedrin, namely a court comprised of 23 justices. Number one. Number two, capital cases, you must begin the deliberations with arguments for acquittal. You cannot say, when you start the deliberations, when you start the back and forth of discussing the merits of the case, you cannot say, hey, what are the arguments that we should put the person down? You must start with what are the arguments of Acquittal of exculpation, whereas with monetary cases, you could start either way, it doesn't matter. Number three, and this already we spoke about in the past, with monetary cases, you need a simple majority of one, both for guilt and innocence, regardless of how you want to rule in favor of the plaintiff or the defendant, you need a minimum of one in the majority. Whereas with capital crime cases... For acquittal, you need a minimum of one. So 12 say acquittal and 11 say guilt. That is sufficient. Whereas for conviction, you need a supermajority of at least two, which in practice means three. You need to have a minimum of 13 to 10 in order to have a conviction. In addition, when you have a decision rendered, when you want to undo that, you want to appeal it. So with monetary cases, you can appeal it in both directions. Both if it was a faulty conviction or a faulty acquittal, you can always appeal it. Whereas with capital crime cases, you can appeal for acquittal, but once a person is acquitted, you can never say, oh, there's new evidence. You can never retry them after they have been acquitted. Number five, with capital punishment... Almost everyone can offer an argument for acquittal, but only the justices can offer an argument for guilt, whereas with monetary cases, everyone is allowed to present their arguments both for guilt and innocence. Number six, once someone renders an opinion, so the way this is done, we'll talk more about this, but the way this is done is that there's the initial discussion and the initial deliberation and the initial vote And then if the vote is for acquittal, the guy's off the hook. But if the vote is for conviction, then we have to have a second go-round to rediscuss and rehash out the matters and see if there's any argument for acquittal that could be a convincing argument. So the law states, this is difference number six, that if someone votes 
for guilt in the initial vote, then they can change their mind and vote for innocence. Whereas when someone initially votes for innocence, then they would not be allowed in the second round to vote for guilt because they've already rendered their opinion. Now, the Gemara says that the truth is, when it comes to the final, final vote, they have to vote with what they believe the evidence shows. So even if initially they thought to acquit, and then once they really discuss the matter further, it turns out the person in their mind is actually guilty, then they must, in the final vote, they must indeed vote to convict. But in the deliberations, they must always present the argument of acquittal. Monetary cases, you start by day and you finish at night. Capital cases, you start by day, you must finish by day. And it must be the following day, like we mentioned. You have to have, like, you have to sleep on it, basically. You cannot vote the same day you start the deliberations. That's the initial vote. And you must have a minimum of a second day of deliberations if the initial vote is for guilt. You cannot convict based upon that. You have to sleep on it. And you have to, once again, turn over the case and the facts and see if you can find any argument for acquittal. And number nine, who begins the argument? If you have a court comprised of three justices or of 23 justices, how do you begin the deliberation? Who talks first? So when it's a minor matter, monetary matter, civil matter, matter of ritual, you always start for the most senior member. Whereas with a capital case, we're concerned that if the senior member renders a ruling, everyone's going to feel like, well, the die is cast. There's going to be a certain anchoring towards that person's perspective. And therefore, you start from the most junior of the justices and you work your way up to the most senior so that way everyone could say their piece and no, and no one feels like the matter has been settled. It's a fait accompli. And therefore, you get the opinions of everyone, not just the opinion of one. And finally, number 10, everyone is kosher. Everyone is qualified to judge in matters of monetary questions, monetary court cases. But with regards to capital crime cases, it's only Kohanim, Levim, and Israelites who are of uh, of good pedigree. So that's some of the introduction to this law of the differences that we see between capital crime cases and monetary cases. Now, the Mishnah tells us that when we have witnesses that come in, and they make a very serious allegation. They allege that the defendant is guilty of a capital crime. So we have to, of course, investigate the claim, investigate the merits, investigate the evidence, investigate the witnesses, find out if there is indeed grounds for conviction here. But the mission tells us that we actually intimidate the witnesses. And there's a very long piece in the Mishnah that describes exactly how they would do it. And they would bring them into court and they would intimidate them. And they would say, you are making a very serious allegation. Perhaps it's not something you actually saw. A witness is only valid to testify on what they saw. Not conjecture, not hearsay, not I heard from someone very reliable. You have to say only, or you're allowed to say only, what you saw with your own two eyes. And perhaps the court says to the witnesses, perhaps you may think that you're not going to be investigated. You can say whatever you want. Oh, no. You are going to be investigated very thoroughly. We're going to go through your claim with a fine-tooth comb. We're going to examine every angle of this question. And we're going to investigate you to make sure that you are saying the truth. 
And you know what? Suppose you were making up a story. Suppose you are fraudulent. Suppose this is a hoax. Suppose you guys are spinning your web over here. Well, if this was monetary, it's no big deal. So you took money out of someone, you paid the money back, you asked for forgiveness, it's good. But if you convict someone who was innocent, not only is that person's blood in your hands, but their children that they would have had, and their grandchildren that they would have had, and their great-grandchildren, until the end of time, all those people you murdered. And it gives an example. The Mishnah shall be an example. When when Cain killed Abel, the verse in Genesis 4 says that God said to Cain, the bloods, plural, the bloods of your brother are screaming to me from the ground. But it's only the blood of your brother, says Rashi, and this is, again, featured in our Mishnah. Cain murdered not only Abel, his brother, but Abel's would-be descendants, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, for hundreds of generations, all that was captured into the one act of murder. And if you are a witness and you're making up a false story and you are just alleging something that never happened and you're going to get someone executed, you have to know there is severe gravity to what you are doing. And every person is so valuable. And when God created the world, he created many trees and many different types of vegetation and many different animals and many different birds and many different fish, but only one human. Because the purpose of the world is the human and one human alone is worthy of having the world created for them. And that's the value of a single human. And if you save one human, we tell the witnesses, it's like you saved the whole world. And if you kill one human, it's like you've killed the whole world. You should be very, very, very careful about what you're about to do. Therefore, the Mishnah interjects, a person, a person must always say, the world was created for me. One human, one Adam. That is sufficient to fulfill the reason why God created the world. That's the end of the intimidation. And then we tell the witnesses, and now you probably really spooked about this. You're intimidated. You're scared. And you may say, why should we do this? Why do we have to be involved in this? Well, if it actually did happen, you had better be involved. The verse tells that you are a witness. If you see something, you must say something. And it is prohibited for you to withhold your testimony from the court. And perhaps you may say, hey, what do we care if this criminal is roaming. Don't you know that when the wicked are destroyed from the world, there is delight and joy. So we're trying to balance this. We're trying to suss out if this is a true testimony, if this is legitimate. We want to hear it. We're desperate to hear it. But if it's false, stop now, leave now, abandon now, because you don't want to go there. And then we begin the cross-examination. In our mitzvah, mitzvah number 77, and again, we're following the order in which they appear in the Torah, is a collection of laws about how the court must process these witnesses. And it's always shaded towards favoring exculpation. When we have a judicial deliberation in a capital crime case, there are various different laws that fall under the category of this mitzvah that relate to how indeed we process this case, how we deliberate with this case. So number one, the justices must say their own opinion. 
they cannot rely on other justices. They cannot say, well, that guy's pretty reliable and he says it makes sense to him. I'll just follow along uh, the coattails of the other justices. No, you must vote based upon your intellect, your understanding of the case, your understanding of the relevant laws. You must vote for guilt or innocence, exculpation or conviction without relying on others. You must say your own opinion and you must speak your mind. So that's number one. You cannot rely on the other justices. You can't say, well, this person is so knowledgeable and they're so wise. And I'm just going to say, well, they, they made sense to them. I'll follow it. No, you must not do that. If you're a justice on a particular case, on a capital crime case, you must vote based upon what you know. In addition, another aspect of this law is how the deliberations are done. You cannot change your mind in middle of the deliberations if the initial assessment is acquittal. So suppose the case is presented from the court and the court hears the arguments, we listen to the witnesses, we hear what they have to say, we hear their take on the situation, we have the defendant there as well, the defendant is presenting his position and we have the initial discussion. And it seems to me as one of the justices that there was enough grounds for acquittal. And when we have the initial vote, I present my vote for acquittal. And it turns out that there are more than 13 justices that say, indeed, the person is guilty. So now we have to wait till tomorrow. And the whole night, we have to discuss the matter amongst ourselves. The Mishnah tells us that we're not allowed to eat, the justices are not allowed to eat. They have to be totally focused on the gravity of the situation. If they're going to execute someone, they better be sure that the person is guilty. And the next day, we've been discussing the matter the entire night. They come to court and they stand again for roll call. Do we have enough votes for acquittal? And everyone that yesterday voted for acquittal must vote today for acquittal as well. And if there are still insufficient votes for acquittal, well, then we have to have a second round of deliberations. But when I voted yesterday for acquittal, today I must vote for acquittal as well. And now what happens after the second round of deliberations and the final vote is going to be cast, that a person must vote with their conscience. A person must vote based upon the merits of the case. But during that initial kind of the, the second round, the beginning of the second round of the deliberations, the person who voted yesterday for acquittal cannot change their mind quite yet. In addition... We have the first to vote. The way the Sanhedrin is comprised, we're told in the Mishnah, it's comprised of a semicircle. And you have at the outer appendages of the semicircle, you have the most minor justices. And in the middle, you have the most senior, the head of the court. And the way you start it, you start it from the edge. And like we said earlier, you must allow everyone to voice their opinion. And what happens when you start from where you would naturally think, let's, let's have the person who's the most qualified. Let's, let's have them render their opinion first. Well, that's going to shade and influence how everyone sees the matter. And we cannot rely on the opinion of only one person. And what's going to be when we have the opinion of only one person? Because the most senior person voted and everyone's like, well, that's convincing. Let me just follow that opinion. 
or they're intimidated perhaps. I don't want to argue with this great sage. Oh, he's such a veteran sage. How can I argue with him? I'm such a small person. I'll just follow with them. It's safety numbers, right? Well, then what in effect you're going to have is that the entire decision is going to be rendered based upon the vote of one person. That is a corruption of the concept of a court. Now, the Sefer HaChinuch, the book that we're using to guide us through the mitzvos, he has an interesting little aside. He says, hey, this is one verse, and there are many laws deduced from one verse. We generally are calling this mitzvah judicial proceedings or judicial deliberations, yet there's various different laws that are derived from one verse that are kind of subcategories of this mitzvah. How do you deduce so many laws from one verse? So he quotes a famous teaching of our sages that there are 70 facets in the Torah. The Torah is multidimensional. And with one verse, you could have a whole host of different ideas. And then he adds, the verses were written very cryptically. And they were written very succinctly. And they were written in a way that they are designed to be unpacked using the tradition and the methodology of the oral Torah. We have Moshe, and Moshe is giving us both the written Torah and the oral Torah, and he's saying, hey, in this one verse, there are many different laws that fall under this category. And the Torah is not written so verbosely, and he adds another reason why, because it has many hidden secrets in it. And all those secrets are compacted and hidden beneath the veneer of the simple text. And then he adds, I say, just tell us that the Torah contains so many secrets. In fact, it is the blueprint for the world. This is an idea that we talk about a lot, that the Torah contains the actual DNA, if you will, the instructions of creation of the world. And therefore, it should be no surprise that with one verse, you could find many different laws that emanate from it. Now, there's another idea here that the Sefer Chinuch tells us. When you look at how the Jewish perspective on capital crime is played out, you know, if you read the Torah simply, there are many, many mitzvos that carry with it capital crime. I believe in the United States, it's only murder, I think, and treason that carry with it the weight of capital crime. In Torah, there are many, many, many laws that carry with it the weight, the gravity, the severity, the stringency of capital crime. And you would think, if you were to just read the Torah and know nothing else, just read Scripture, you would think that, well, there's a lot of execution in Jewish law, in Jewish courts. Look how many mitzvahs contain with it the punishment of capital crime. But when you study the laws in more detail, and in this mitzvah as well, like the Sefer Chinuch tells us, there's always a bias towards mercy and acquittal and exculpation. And a lot of these laws that we start off with arguments for acquittal, if you voted for acquittal yesterday, you have to vote acquittal today, etc. And we favor one, a minimum of one for acquittal. You need a supermajority for conviction. All that is to teach us a lesson that the Almighty indeed loves us and he is not desirous of capital crime. And he gives a beautiful parable. So suppose you have a man that has a hundred children. He has a hundred children. These are a hundred of his biological children. 
I would imagine he would need more than one uh, co-conspirator for this. But this is a parable. And he builds a city for his hundred children. And he settles them in that city. And then he realizes there has to be some system of laws. There has to be some sort of enforcement of laws or else you don't have a functioning society. So he makes a rule that, well, if you hit someone, you're going to be fined. You're going to be punished monetarily. And if you kill someone, well, you're going to be executed. And that creates a certain deterrent to make sure that we have a good society, a functioning society, a healthy society, a righteous society. And what happens? One of his sons gets up and violates this law and kills another member of this city. And remember, these are all his children. He loves them all. Well, if he just lets lets them off the hook, well, then there's anarchy. And no one's scared of anyone else. You know there's no consequences. You could shoot your neighbor if he bothers you, if the music's too loud. So what should he do? What he would do is he would say, well, no, we're going to try this other son of mine. But we're going to look for every argument for acquittal. We're going to turn over every stone to make sure that if there is an argument, if there are grounds for acquittal, we are going to acquit them. And if you are able to acquit them, great. If not, the proper thing to do indeed is to execute them in order to maintain and perpetuate the society and the civilization. But that's not the desired outcome. And obviously the analogy is is clear. The Almighty loves us. We are his children. He doesn't want us to be executed, but there has to be a system of laws. There has to be a deterrent. But in the event that someone is accused of this, we turn over every stone to find grounds for acquittal. That is the Torah's attitude regarding capital punishment. Now, the Sefer Chinuch, as he always does, he gives us some miscellaneous laws of this particular mitzvah. So, for example, we've seen this in the past. If everyone votes for guilt, the person is actually innocent, or at least the case gets pushed to a different court. And in the event that the vote is equal or it's not sufficient to go either way, we have to add the witnesses. What happens if someone says, I don't know, etc.? These are some of the laws that we talk about. Uh, very interesting laws. What happens if you have a court of 23 justices, and then there are other observers, apprentices, if you will, clerks, perhaps we could call them today, who are witnessing the case. And one of the clerks says, hey, I have an argument for acquittal. So if it's an argument for guilt, then we just ignore them. But if it's an argument for acquittal, we bring them up and elevate them to the court. And if they present their argument, and indeed it is good, they are promoted to become a member of the court. Their apprenticeship is over. They are now a full-fledged member of the court. They've proven their credentials. But if their argument is not good, we don't send them down. We let them stay there with us for the rest of the day, because what happens if the person knows, hey, if my argument is groundless, they're going to send me down. I'll be embarrassed. So people won't present their arguments. And therefore, the way we prevent that is when one of these apprentices, when they make a claim and say, I have an argument for acquittal, 
and they come up to the court and they stay the rest of the day, at a minimum, as a way to not dissuade people from presenting their arguments. Now, the defendant themselves, as well, can also present arguments for acquittal, and we would listen to them, provided that there is substance in their words. So again, we see that even though there are so many mitzvahs in a Torah that contain capital punishment, ostensibly, it's not so easy to get a conviction, and whenever we talk about capital crime in Torah, it's important to mention the Mishnah in the book of Makros that tells us that if a Jewish court executes according to one opinion, once every seven years, according to second opinion, once every 70 years, that is a bloodthirsty court, and that is not a court that's living up to the standards that is expected from such a court. So even though there are many laws that carry with the gravity of capital punishment, in actuality, the way the system is designed and the way we always favor exculpation and the way we turn over every possible clue to find exculpation, that indeed shows that it's not so easy. In fact, Rabbi Akiva, on that particular Mishnah, he said, if I was part of the court, there would never be an execution. Not every seven years, not every 70 years, never. I'd be clever enough to always find an argument for exculpation, and then his colleagues told him, well, then okay, then there's no deterrent. If there's no execution ever, 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 then there's no deterrent, and therefore... We have the other problem. There's going to be anarchy. But these are some of the laws. Mitzvah number 77, judicial proceedings and judicial deliberations. If you have any questions, you can always send me an email, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. And the word rabbi is spelled like rabbit, but there's no T. So rabbi, and then one word, walby, W-O-L-B-E, at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, or feedback is always appreciated.